0: Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. I almost hate to use the word educational. Charles Staley.
1: And uh, I failed phys so and English all the way through high school. Phil Stevens. I guess I'm kind of the, uh, the
0: dark force here. And Rob Fortress Fortney. But there really is no secret. Right? Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is ironradio.org. I'm Robert Fortress Fortney, um, former editor at Meg International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifting um, enthusiast.
1: Welcome aboard, everybody. Charles Staley here. I am author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Intensity Training, and I'm also a Masters category uh, Olympic weightlifter.
2: Uh, Phil Stevens, strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. Um, I'm also featured in this month's Muscle and Fitness, which comes out Monday. Um, and seem to be winner of the the very large Gilbert Global Cultural Festival Highlander Challenge in the heavyweight division, seeing as I'm
0: competing against myself. Oh, I thought you were in the uh, swimsuit issue.
2: No, that's that's next time. That's oh. coming up. The, yeah, uh, want... they, they viewed
1: the swimsuit as a non-cultural uh, event. Uh, that was the issue this year.
0: I want to make mention uh, to listeners to uh Make sure you pay attention at the end of this show because I'll be announcing uh, winners from our trivia contest and the uh, um, winner of our free year subscription to that uh, magazine, Muscle Insider.
1: Very cool. Hey, well, guys and girls, we've got kind of a cool uh, hour ahead because we've got sports scientist Dr. Michael Hartman with us today. Um, Michael earned his doctorate in muscle physiology uh, and has worked as a collegiate strength and conditioning coach and sports scientist at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. So we'll have lots of questions about that. He was also a member of the inaugural USA Weightlifting Performance Enhancement Team. Uh, As a college professor, uh, Dr. Hartman uh, was responsible for the education and training of hundreds of future fitness professionals and coaches, and has taught nearly 500 uh, individuals the anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics of strength training and conditioning. Uh, and uh, other areas of interest uh, of Dr. Hartman's include uh, neuromuscular physiology and coaching education. Uh, and before we get too much further, and uh, Michael, thanks for joining us today. I, I just want to mention your, your, uh, your website, which is uh, www.drhartman, and I'll just spell that D O C T O R H A R T M A dot nblogspotcom And... Uh, Thanks again for being with us today.
3: Oh, thank you guys for having me. I'm a, I'm a fan of the show, and I'm excited to be here.
1: So what, uh, what led you into the whole sports science field? We kind of like to ask that of people. Uh, were, were you an athlete initially, or did you, did you come commit this from a different path?
3: No, I was. I think my, uh, my training and background is probably no different than a lot of other coaches and other uh, people in the field. Uh, athlete, kind of a failed athlete once I got to the college level. Uh, I realized it wasn't good enough to play at a Division One level, so that kind of led me to the, the coaching side of things. Uh, I originally wanted to be a, a football coach. I had played football and wrestled as a, as a child growing up, went to college with the idea of playing football and thought, well, if I can't play it, I'm going to coach football. I then sort of realized that to, to coach football at a high level, it, it helps to have played at a high level. Uh, that kind of led me to uh, the strength and conditioning side of things. I'd always use strength training. To improve performance, I had a pretty good background in it. I had a good working relationship with the, the strength coach at my, my university at the time, so he kind of brought me in as a, as a student assistant, which led to an internship. And then after the internship was over, I just stuck around there for about, about two years. During the time as a as a collegiate strength coach, I really started to get interested in, in the science side of things. The, the program I, I graduated from, it, it was a good basic exercise science program, but it had its limitations. Uh, sure. namely the, the, the performance side of things. I have a very good training and background in, in cardiac rehabilitation and, and biochemistry and, and things like that. So I had to go out on my own and, and really find the information that I thought was important as it related to, to strength training, conditioning, uh, and sports performance. So working as a strength coach, having that interest in the science side of things, uh, just sort of led me to looking for some graduate programs and, and graduate programs where I could do both coach and, and do some research in the lab. And uh, I, I met an individual named Dr. Lon Kilgore, who I believe has either been on the show or, or Charles, you may know from uh, some master's well, weightlifting well, you, you competitions. Not to, not to interrupt your sure. thought,
1: but I, I actually just actually met Dr. Kilgore at uh, Master's Nationals last okay so Yeah, I know. He was out out
3: in New York, and uh, I think he did and, pretty good. Uh,
1: and I, I just have had the greatest... Uh, greatest uh, respect
3: for him. is uh, he, awesome. No, I, I feel the same way, and he's he's a big mentor of mine and a very good friend, but and he's somebody that when I was looking at grad programs, he basically presented the opportunity where, well, I can come in, do, do research in the lab, but at the same time, coach Olympic weightlifting, which is you know pretty similar to what I was doing in the, the weight room uh, with college athletes, so I jumped to that opportunity, and just being around him and, and other people, uh, Dr. Mike Stone, who is a uh, again, kind of former strength coach, sports scientist, uh, and, and people like him just sort of kind of led me to the, the area of, of sports science. I, I train some individuals. I do some kind of consulting with different teams, but I don't really consider myself a, a strength and conditioning coach right now because I'm not in the, the weight room, not in sure. the gym on a daily basis, Uh sure. but it's still a very big passion. And, and I try to do all my, all my research, all my sports science or anything is always kind of directed to either strengthening conditioning or improving sports performance.
1: There's an awful lot on your website about Olympic weightlifting. And uh, as strange as as it it may seem, it's it's kind of a controversial topic, uh, meaning the inclusion of Olympic-style lifts or variations of them in strength and conditioning programs. How did you – and you sort of alluded to it a moment ago, but how did you kind of arrive into that whole world Uh, because – A lot of conditioning coaches come into the come into the conditioning field from more of a powerlifting point of view, um, and there are other paths as well. But how did you kind of get hooked up into the weightlifting scene?
3: Sure as a as a high school student uh my high school used the the bigger faster stronger program which included power clean so that was my my first introduction to any olympic style weightlifting and then at the college level the the head strength coach I was working for he was big on including uh basically the the, the power variations power snatch power clean sure. uh, and some jerks in the in the training of weightlifters and i kind of at a early you know early in my career i realized this is this is something I need to to perform well and be very good at coaching. It's a it's a fairly technical. Nah, it's technical, but only if you kind of come from from, from a different perspective. But I wanted yeah. to be good at, at teaching the lifts. I wanted to be good at coaching the lifts, and I wanted to be good at performing the lifts. Like I said, I did a you know football power cleans for you know five or six years, but then I just started really working on doing the full lifts: snatch, clean, and jerk, and that led me to competing. Uh, coaching the lifts, and it's still a pretty big passion of mine.
1: I'm looking at a post on your your blog uh, recently where you're covering the combines. (laughs) Some of the guys coming out of of the NFL, I mean, I I know Phil uh, feels that uh, all of our top stud athletes are in the NFL right now, and when you look at some of the performances in terms of the vertical jump and the 40 and the, the standing long jump, just, uh, man, it's just insane. Every year, the the bar is raised. And uh, but I, I want to draw a connection between that and Olympic lifts. And, and my my perception of of NFL strength and conditioning is that not many of these guys are doing Olympic lifts or variations of the list. And do you are, 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 you, um, are you are you are you coming from a place where you could verify that thought of mine? Am I am I right about I, that? And
3: I what, absolutely. What I absolutely can. When I was an undergrad student, I did a, a kind of like a two week long observation with the, the Baltimore Ravens. And at the time, they were uh, just coming off a, a Super Bowl victory. And they were, you know, one of the, they still are one of the premier defensive teams in the league. And people were sort of looking to them to see what they were doing. They were very much a, a machine based, high intensity training, one set to failure team. Uh, other teams that I, I, I know of that use that. You can kind of track their their coaching lineage either back to the Baltimore Ravens or or some other variation of different teams. Uh, I think at the the NFL level, I think coaches there are looking at it from a a cost return sort of standpoint or a cost benefit standpoint where they could spend, you know, 30 minutes teaching somebody how to how to do a power clean, but if that that athlete has you know pre-existing wrist or elbow or shoulder injuries, uh, there's going to be a lot of tweaking. Or they can just have them you know improve strength just through a, a, another means and, and do some, some power yeah. training through med balls or plyometrics sure. or basic sure. things like that.
2: Uh, a recent a recent p- interview with John wellborn, who played for yeah. the Chiefs and all them. Uh, he kind of touched on this, too. And he was like, he said the main thing with the, the NFL strength coaches is their job is, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The guys have been doing something right up there in the NFL. Absolutely. And what he said, he said the guys that were doing the Olympic variations before they got to the team, then they just kept doing them. Yep. But the majority of them didn't.
3: No, I, uh, I absolutely saw that too firsthand, because at the time when I was doing, I wasn't coaching at all, I was just kind of in the weight room observing, just as a, an undergrad student, and there were players on the team who had come out of like the University of Tennessee, which is a, a very good, at the time was a very good uh, collegiate strength conditioning program, built their programs around squats and cleans and and uh, and snatches. Uh, some of those athletes were still doing snatches and cleans and, and heavy squats in the weight room, because that's all they basically knew. They they've been training that way for the last, you know, four years in college and then however long they've been in the league, so that's something they always go back to. So I think John's 100% correct and uh the ones that that know it stick to it and the ones that don't know it aren't really willing to learn it or I'm not even sure they need to learn it once they get to that level.
1: Well, I you know, that leads to, you know, another question which is if you were going to guess if you look at everybody in the NFL today, how many of these people were doing Uh, Olympic variations in high school or college, and then how many of them are doing it uh, in the NFL?
3: Uh, you know, it, it probably it varies. I would say, much like my experience and a lot of other people's, at the high school level, you maybe learn what a power clean is. It doesn't mean you're doing it right. It's it's very That's much right. a, a reverse curl, lean back, spread your legs, and, okay. and drag yeah. the bar up your body. Um, but at the the college level, I, I I saw a stat once, and I think it was it was published in like an NSCA research journal that said something like 24 out of the top 30 Division One teams use the Olympic lifts or, or some variation in their program. Uh, and I'm sure it, it varies by by program and, and the way college programs are set up. When a new head coach comes in, he usually replaces the, the strength staff. So if a, a head coach comes in and he brings a strength coach with him that used machine-based sure. training, high intensity, well, that, that team's out the window. But just oh, off yeah. the top of my head, I know the schools like USC, Oklahoma, Texas, uh, are using some Olympic lifts. And, again, yeah. it, it's how, how it's much are they using. Quantify. Yeah, hard yeah. to quantify what time of year are they using the Olympic lifts. And now, uh, is there a,
1: in your opinion, is there a substantial drop-off of that once they get to the NFL? Because it's my impression that there's not much of this. And for that matter, uh, I don't want to keep this even focused on Olympic lifting. I get the sense that a lot of NFL players don't even do deadlifts.
3: You know, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure they do either. And I think it comes down to, again, them just looking at it from a uh, cost benefit uh, perspective. And when you do things like deadlifts, it, it takes a lot out of you. You have to recover, and you may, you know, yep. may need a couple of days off. And if they're they're making their 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 paycheck by by performing on the field, they may not want to do anything off the field or in the weight room that's going to hinder their performance on the field. But
1: is it? Is it? Am I the only one disheartened? Uh, To see, maybe this is just my naivete uh, coming through, but to see all these dudes like doing, you know, uh, forty-plus inch vertical jumps and and four point two eight forties, and these guys are for the for in 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 large part they're not even doing free weight training. You know, I mean, is that am I making an incorrect evaluation there?
3: You know, it's, uh, it might come down to the, the haves versus the have-nots. And, uh, there's a lot of, you know, have-nots looking at that from an outside perspective saying, well, they yeah. should be doing this, they should be doing this, they should be doing this. But they're looking at it from the perspective of, I'm already here and I'm not doing it. Why do I need to, why do I need to start now? But I think it's, it's disheartening in, in the sense that, uh, it's scary to think maybe how much better they could be if they Well, that, that's where I'm going. In training. other words,
1: these guys are doing monster Superhuman performances on what I think all of us would consider to be, you know, not the most optimal training. Now, now again, you have to step back and, and 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 qualify that. I mean, there's sort of in vitro training, which means that you know, how would you train a guy for power production if he wasn't on the football field versus real life, where you have to recover for games. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it's amazing these guys have performances like this with strength training that. You know, I think all of us would agree it's suboptimal.
3: Yeah, and it yeah. maybe just goes back to that. There's many ways to, to skin a cat, too.
2: Yeah. Or
3: there is if there is no best way, and if there was a best way, I think we'd all be doing it. So.
2: Well, and you also have to look at the pool of that You're talking about the genetic pool, even. I mean, you're talking about whittling it down from peewee football down to middle then high school, college, then even semi-pro and then pro, you know, so he whittled down this huge pool of millions to to a few people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. These guys so, are great. Fight uh, their training, not because of it. So maybe
1: this is a uh, what we see in the NFL and in the combines. I mean, maybe this is uh, real evidence of, of how important your genetics are,
2: and your choice of a sexual
3: partner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah
3: or your 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 dad's choice of a parents, sexual partner.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> parental selection is a, is a big factor. I'd love to see a research study done on parental selection uh, on athletic prowess but
3: uh... You know, it's not all genetics, though, because I have seen studies that, that looked at, like, identical twins. And, and it was a a group of identical twins that competed in track and field at, like, a an international-type level. And I want to say it was either Sweden or, or Switzerland or one of the Scandinavian countries. And there was, like, three or four groups of, of identical twins that where one was on, like, the national team and the other one wasn't. So they had the same genetics, but it came down to... Who wanted it more, and and you can look at even, you know, just families in, in the United States with, with different uh, siblings who, you know, one made it and one didn't. So the genetics you would assume is the same, but you know, something the 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 remaining 20% that genetics can't give you the heart and the desire and the the will to compete, you still have to get that yourself.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, by far. I mean, if you have to you have to want it and you have to work hard. If
3: Absolutely. I,
1: well, listen. I, I want to switch gears a little bit because I, I really know very little about the USA Weightlifting Performance Enhancement Team. Could you tell me a little about your work with them? And is that is that uh, an institution that's still existing or no longer? Tell me you, about
3: that. A little you bit. know, to my knowledge, it, it no longer exists. Uh, USA Weightlifting's had uh, not some call it turmoil, but they've had some some changes with the board of directors, and they've had a new executive director. But uh, this was right around two thousand two, two thousand three. They decided they had a, a small grant from the United States Olympic Committee, where they wanted to basically bring in some some experts in, in different areas, like sports physiology, uh, sports psychology, and some different uh, just different scientists in the field uh, to start looking at some of the top uh, national level weightlifters as they lead up to the. Uh, the American Open, and then maybe hopefully use some of the information they they gained in that little study to help the you know the, the top level athletes compete at the Olympics, which were coming up in, in 2004. Uh, so through my connection with with Dr. Lon Kilgore and his connection through Dr. Mike Stone, I was sort of selected, and I went out and I lived at the Olympic Training Center for about nine months. And my, my sole duty when I was out there was to work with Dr. Stone and, and help him collect data and analyze the data and, and give the results back to the, the coaches. And we measured tons and tons of different variables, just as a as kind of a training theory, but tracking the training process as they peaked for the American Open. We uh, looked at hormonal variables. We looked at some, some neuromuscular uh, biomechanical-type variables, such as bar speed and, and vertical jump power output. We had a sports psychologist who was looking at, uh, kind of from a, like a training and recovery standpoint, how they felt with the training. And we were just trying to find any single piece of information that maybe we could help, help the performance of the, the Olympic athletes in, in the upcoming year. Uh, it was that nine month little study. We tracked, tracked everything they did, every, every workout they did, every set, every rep. And then we kind of, kind of had at the end that we had a, a phone book size, you know, binder full of information. And it didn't really tell us a whole lot. Uh, it kind of confirmed what we already knew, but it didn't really give us any new information. Uh, to my knowledge, the the team—I guess you can call it that—no longer really exists. A lot of the same, the, all the individuals that were on the team were still somehow involved in, in weightlifting, but it really—we don't have meetings like we did every two weeks okay. or every every month. And and we said it. it was actually it was a very good uh, kind of setup, and it was sort of like a. Like a NASCAR pit crew, so we had these athletes, and then when the when the cars come into to pit road, you know, you have one guy does one tire and one guy does the windshield, and that's kind of how we treated this performance enhancement team, where we had these athletes, and everybody sort of had their role. We had athletic trainers and, and sports scientists, and just trying to improve performance, and then you know, from a research side, trying to find any information we could to uh, to hopefully apply it to to other athletes.
1: And uh, what, so. It confirmed what you already knew. So, can you summarize that? I mean, sure. what, what do we know? I mean, what?
0: Uh, yeah, I was wondering that myself. Sure. Yeah, what
1: do we know? I mean, you know, this is perhaps redundant for some people, but it's 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 probably worth repeating.
3: No, absolutely. Uh, the 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 main thing that I pulled from it, and I think everybody else did, is we have no concrete marker of overtraining. We have lots of things that can potentially lead us to believe somebody is overtraining. But at the same time, there's nothing 100% to confirm it. And what I mean by that is uh, we know that in in, uh, times of high training stress, so training intensity is very high and you're trying to do a lot of volume, uh, testosterone can actually decrease, uh, cortisol, which is a stress hormone, will increase, and and cortisol has lots of uh, bad properties in terms of uh, like muscle wasting and, and different things like that. So we would have these athletes who, during their, their very hard training phases, their testosterone was very low, their cortisol was very high, but then they would go into the weight room and they would still set a PR in, in the back squat for a set of five. So we'd kind of look at the the data and say, well, from a science standpoint, this athlete shouldn't be able to do that. And it kind of confirmed that, you know, science isn't always right and the, the human body is capable of, of all sorts of things if you just you push it hard enough. Uh, we were looking at things like decreases in in bar velocity. So we we were having athletes perform a snatch, and we would measure their their bar velocity with the idea that when they were fatigued and when training was hard, their bar velocity would go down. Uh, That may be a time to to decrease the load or have them back off on the number of reps they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. But we would see these athletes with very slow bar velocities, and they would still make all all their attempts. And again, wow. it was just sort of like, well, the the human spirit's a pretty incredible thing, and if they really want to lift the weight, they can find uh, find ways to do it. So even the bar is slowing down; maybe their speed under the bar is improving. And we really didn't have a way to to measure that accurately. But uh, again, it just kind of left us with a lot of a lot of n- not new information, but confirmed that you know what, there is no 100% marker on overtraining because if there was, everybody would know it, and we would all we'd all use that to adjust training.
0: Well, maybe perhaps that's something to do with the whole concept of, you know, form becoming function kind of a thing, you know, the the absolute absolute skill set that's, you know, achieved by these people. It's just, um, like you say, all these things indicate that maybe it it shouldn't happen, but they just so become what they do that all these different variables, that aren't being looked at,
3: just override those things. They find a way to do it, and I think that's that's what it kind of comes down to. And and whatever, they're, they're tired, they're fatigued, uh, cortisol is high. They're you know they're not sleeping great, but at the same time they still go into the gym and 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 dominate the weights. And sometimes that's all. That's what I, you have I to do. But,
1: I can't help but be reminded of me uh, a week ago today at Masters Nationals, and uh, I I got PRs across the board and PR total on, and and literally the night before, and I'm 50 years old, not not a minute of sleep, just yeah, and I and I mean literally not for a second, and. Uh, You know, so it's
3: kind of interesting. No, Um, I I think you see that all the time in in different sports. You know, you have a situation like that where, you know, just common sense would say, well, you didn't sleep well the night before, you traveled on an airplane across the country. You have all these things against you, but you still stepped up and and set PRs, and that just comes down to who wants it more.
1: Michael, I'm wondering if you have, and and, this will be kind of our last, Topic before we go to the the topic of the week, but I'm wondering if you have any um, hot button thoughts about periodization. I, it's a favorite topic of mine. I, I'm I'm kind of a periodization denier. I just think it's uh, it's so problematic, and and the whole idea. I mean, I I, I I don't disagree with the the primary principles of peaking and tapering, but trying to forecast your training is is so problematic, and I, I tend to be a fan of. Uh, certain concepts of the Bulgarian approach where you kind of base every day on your capacity for that day. And, uh, you know, if the iron's hot, you strike, and if the iron's not hot, you you, you go in the other direction. But just wonder, for for everyone who's listening in, and we have a lot of strongman competitors, uh, uh, powerlifters, weightlifters, Highland Games competitors, I wonder, from your scientific uh, perch, as it were, if you have any any thoughts about... uh, what people could do better in terms of planning their
3: training. You know, I, I agree with you, Charles. I think it, it's it's good to have a, a plan. And this is coming from somebody who has you know written long-term training plans and has tried to you know plan out my personal training for 12 and 16 weeks. And it, it never works out exactly the, the way it's written down. It looks nice on paper, but when you actually get into the gym, sometimes you just can't do it. I think it's good to have a, a general plan. And you mentioned, like, peaking and, and tapering. I think it's important to know when you need to to really increase the the training load and what I mean is, if you have a competition on on Saturday, uh, Monday is probably not the best day to try new PRs, right? You need to have some sure. content no and some in some logic. But at the same time, I, I agree. And it's one of my my favorite expressions about you know cooking when the the iron is hot or cooking when the, when yep. the pan is hot. And it, if you have when you're you know you have, you know you have three weeks of build up and then you have a planned D load week in that in that fourth week, if you feel fantastic going into that fourth week, why not why not push it a little bit? Why not try to add? you know, 5 That's kilos to your back a lot
1: of people because if if you work hard for 3 weeks, you, you know, you're 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 anticipating that you're going to need the deload, but if for for some reason and and you may not know what the reason is and I'm not sure it even matters, but if, nope. if if it's clear that you're capable of a PR, then clearly that means you don't need the deload because you're you're at peak functioning and you are not overtrained yet. And, Absolutely.
3: Uh, and I think maybe sometimes after after two weeks of, of training, if you have, you know, back-to-back very hard weeks and you go into the gym that third week and that's supposed to be your week where you're setting new PRs, and if you just don't have it, it's, you know, it's not anybody's fault. You just have to readjust your plan, maybe take a down week and then build back up and then maybe set it uh, three weeks later. So I think it's good to have a, a general model, but, you know, take it on a, a day-by-day basis or a week-by-week basis is probably the best approach.
1: You know, it's it's so interesting that you say that because every top coach and scientist and expert I've ever talked to about this subject says exactly the same thing.
3: You know, it's it's funny. It's never uh, – we have a lot of people in, in the country and strength enthusiasts who they always think it's either all the way this way or, or none at all. You have the people that are, you know, double periodization and they know that the tempo of reps they want to do and, and their 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 pre- and post-workout nutrition is perfect. And then you have the other a uh, complete opposite side, you have the guys that say, "Well, just you know lift heavy, eat big, and you know smash weight, and you'll be fine and in and truth, of the matter is it's never one or the other. It's always somewhere in the middle. There are times when you just have to the the you know lift big and there's times where you have to have some general plan and I think the the ones that really get it are the ones that understand that and the ones that can make adjustments on the fly.
1: I was talking to a client of mine about this just the other day, and he was asking about how i cycle my training. And, you know, what I told him is I said, you know, at least for me being a little older and I've got some injury issues and things, there are so many times where you unexpectedly need to downregulate your training because something's hurting or it's just not there. If you don't then offset that by striking while the iron is hot when those opportunities come by, then, you know, your whole, your whole training Direction is, is 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 not going to be optimized. Though. Absolutely,
3: you may be missing out on on half of your your good workouts just because Absolutely. your your plan says you shouldn't lift heavy that day.
1: Well, for Ron, sure. I mean, Ron, uh, um, Rob, and Phil. I mean, would wouldn't you guys say that you applying this in your own training? I mean, I certainly do.
2: Absolutely. 100. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, something I've been working on lately, and then I've got I've got clients working on is, yeah, it's a periodization. It, it has aspects of periodization where, yeah, we have a plan, you're going in to do this, but I also have built-in kind of awards, and then also, you know, you get punished. If you're not not (laughs) really punished, but if you're not feeling good, it is your job to walk away from this and and accept it and move on. But then if you go through and smoke what I have down, then I have a written out, here's what you do, it's time to go for it.
0: Well, I was actually just driving to the gym yesterday for a scheduled uh, session, and I actually just turned away halfway and came back. Um, I mean, in bodybuilding, you know, this is all, you know, it's known as in- instinctive training. Of course, that's been kind of laughed about over the years, because what does that mean? I mean, I remember Dorian Yates once saying that, um, you know, if there was such a thing as instinctive training, nobody would be, be training, we would be down at the pub having some beer. So, right. um, But having said that, I mean, again, kind of going back to the whole my roots in bodybuilding, I mean, even guys like Victor Richards and that, they used to, I remember speaking with him once, and this was like years ago, like 20 years ago, and he was saying that, you know, I mean, if, if he felt like training legs four days, four days in a row, he would do it, you know, sure. and then if he didn't feel like training legs for two weeks after that, he would do that too. Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I yeah. think you can go one way, you can go too far one way or the other, but I think there's a lot to be said in, you know, what I just said as far as, and what you guys are saying is about, you know, striking while the iron's hot kind of a thing.
2: My problem with 100% of st- instinctual training is there's very few people that can handle it. You have to be very mature with your own training and being able to read your own body. I mean, I I think I'm lucky, and I'm one of the few that, that is able to. I think a lot of that's due to injuries that i battled since I was so young. So I know my limits, and I know when I need to push it. I, most people, you tell them train instinctually, they're either going to go too hard, or a lot of them aren't going to go hard enough. Because a lot of people, you need, you do need to have this plan down. Say this is what you're doing today. Sure. And, and then there's vice versa. The guys that will go in there, they're only capable of doing 225 on a squat, and they think they can do 315 today, <laughs> and they push things too hard. So, it, yeah, it, it's a juggling game. I mean, you gotta. But but I do agree. I mean, it's uh, well that, I mean, that, that it's what you're
0: talking about is just you know the, the mat- maturity of the trainer himself and. Yeah. Obviously that, that can only take place over time, so I mean you're absolutely right. I mean you can get some guy who's been the only trained a few years, and you know the ability to kind of um, determine those types of things are kind of far out of their reach
1: um, Michael, and one last thing, and I forget this was my last remaining item uh, before we go to the topic have you ever done, Have you ever studied uh, hormonal markers of fibromangina?
3: <laughs> no, I, I haven't, but uh No, uh, uh, no and uh I'm um, I'm familiar with the term and I'm I'm, yeah. I'm working very hard to prevent fibromangina from occurring. It's so difficult to
1: get it's difficult <laughs> to you. get grant uh yeah,
3: very, very difficult.
1: for some reason and and I just don't know why that is, but I just
3: thought <laughs> I'd sure. like
1: cue up the music and we'll go to the topic. got a scientist with us this week we're going to talk about science and uh, specifically sports science and its role in strength and conditioning and uh, or, or lack the, the lack of its role and like it always just seems like from a coach's perspective that there's this huge disconnect between between science and practice and it, it, is it, is, that, is that correct or is that just an excuse <laughs> that we use as coaches? Is that just coaches wanking, you know, or is there really a disconnect, do you think?
3: Yeah, I think it depends on how you look at it because I, I come at it from the perspective that, Look at the, some of the top strength and conditioning coaches. They are they are very much scientists. It doesn't mean they they have a lab coat on and they're in the lab looking at individual muscle fibers, but they they employ you know lack of a better term the scientific method. If you look at uh, you know potentially how you train your clients or how Phil trains some of his lifters or. Uh, even somebody like Mark Ripito, who I've known for about 10 years and I know is a friend of the show, uh, they, they use this, this scientific method in the sense that they're, they're collecting information from all their, their lifters and all their trainers and they're kind of formulating and, and testing different, uh, hypotheses and they say, well, what if we do this differently? What's going to be the outcome? And what if we do this differently? What's going to be the outcome? And then they confirm those results with, with using that same program or the same basic training model on other lifters and other clients and, and things like that. So if you look at it from that perspective, I, I think they're one and the same. Uh, I think sometimes people get uh, afraid of what they don't know. So you'll have strength coaches who are afraid of the science side of things. You'll have scientists who are afraid of the strength side of things because they're not in that in that environment all the time. But I think the, the really top strength and conditioning coaches very much are, are scientists and what they do is very analytical. And, and I mentioned Ruperto, uh, and he's somebody that I think from the outside perspective, people think, well, he, he's not very scientific. He says, just squat and, and deadlift and you do this. But if, if you talk to him for more than 30 seconds, you, you'll know that everything he does is, is very well planned out in terms of of placement on the bar on the back and the angle of the feet and and how he teaches his athletes how to squat. Uh, And I think a lot of other coaches are are the same way. And you may not have a a dozen scientific studies to confirm what you're doing, but through through the process of, of testing and evaluation, and, you know, again, formulating this this hypothesis that if we do this, you know, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, this is going to be the desired outcome. That again, that's the scientific method. So I think they're one and the same, and I think that disconnect just comes up through, uh, I don't know, lack of understanding of, of what it is to be a scientist and what it is to be a, a strength coach.
1: I wonder if I could pose that question in reverse order. I wonder sure. if there's – I wonder if, um, uh, you know – Coaches always feel that they're ahead of what scientists are doing, and I wonder if scientists could um, could could learn a lesson from that a little bit sometimes too. But,
3: but absolutely, I think there's there's a lot of arrogance on the side of of, of science, and and a lot of times on coaches too. But we, we sort of feel yeah. like, well, there's nothing that we we can't already we can't learn from the field, and I, I disagree with that a hundred percent. I think there, there's so much that we can learn from what what people are doing with their clients and. And, and there's so much, and we alluded to it in the first part of the show. There's so much that can happen in the weight room or on the field of competition that we can't confirm with, with science. And they look at it from maybe a baseball perspective. And the, the the last two years, the Cy Young winner is a guy from San Francisco who was about five foot seven and 155 pounds. And and you know, physiologically and biomechanically, there's no way he should be able to throw a baseball as hard as he does, but he does it. And science can't support that, but it's sure as heck happening.
1: You know, another example that brings to mind is, is Usain Bolt.
3: Sure, absolutely. You
1: know, just freaky levers. You just would never expect a performance like that from, from a guy who has long levers like that. Uh,
3: there would be tons of coaches that would, would look at him and say, you have to run this event. You're you're too tall. You have to do this. Yeah. And he, he, I think he's proved them all wrong, that he can run anything from 100 up to 400 and, and be the best in the world at it.
1: Hey guys, before I forget, let me uh, somebody make a note about let's do a show sometime in the future devoted to the scientific method. I think that would just be uh, you know I just think so many people are kind of ignorant of of what those steps entail, and it's a very well you know established uh, kind of procedure. I think that would just be a a great show to do. Uh, Michael, how uh, I'm thinking of maybe a, a, a typical coach say he's training power lifters in Omaha, Nebraska or somewhere, how can the average coach or trainer um, kind of develop a better relationship with the research that's out there? And how, um, you know, should they, be, should they be going to PubMed and, and reading abstracts? Or are, are there journals that you think are particularly applicable to what we do? How, how can the average coach kind of get in better touch with the science out there?
3: You know that's one of the the big problems with sports science and the kind of the, the downfall of sports science, if you if you want to call it that. Like all, all research from like from my side, like the publication and and things like that side of things, you have to you have collection process, you have the analysis process, and then you have the dissemination of, of new information. Now the problem is the the only place where you can publish sports science research is in scientific research journals. Uh that had limited access to the strength coach in, in Omaha, Nebraska unless he knows about PubMed or he has a subscription to uh, an individual journal, or he's very good friends with his library. I, I think from the sports science perspective, we need to do a better job of, of presenting our information to the to the masses. Uh It's one of the reasons why I, I started my blog, and I've only had it for a couple months now, but I, I want to go in and I want to start pulling out research articles, and I want to start presenting them, in a a much more reader-friendly format and try to get that information out there. There's lots of good stuff, and there's a lot of bad stuff too, but there's a lot of good stuff being done in in research that I think is is applicable to a lot of people. And I think from the the scientist side of things, we need to to publish that in, in more, you know, Readily accessible places, whether that means, uh, you know, publishing it in like kind of like lay type publications, whether it's like a, a muscle and fitness or, or muscle mag or the muscle insider or any of these new like body bodybuilding type magazines, or just on on websites. And I think if, if it's good information, it's going to withstand the kind of the, the peer review process. And like I would stand by any sort of uh, research or data I collected in, in my lab, and just because it, it isn't published in a, a a journal that's indexed on PubMed. I don't think it it, it disvalues the, the the knowledge that potentially you could have for a coach.
2: Wouldn't you say that's? I mean, uh, putting putting very technical or um, I guess hard to understand things into more simplistic knowledge, simplistic, easy to understand format that that's kind of one of my signs of a great coach. I mean, I think it would be very it would do the scientific field a huge justice if they would realize this and help others understand what the heck they're doing.
3: Absolutely. I I, I, agree. That I agree 100%. There, that's
2: exactly what they're doing.
3: And uh I wish Dr. Lowry was on the the line so he could maybe add cuz I think he is somebody that's doing a pretty good job with that with his, you know, his his publication of articles in in, in T-Muscle or or T-Nation and and things like that. There are a lot of of very good scientists who are trying, but it's a very small minority. And and part of that is just the academic process where when when you're a a sports scientist or you're a professor at a university, you have certain expectations of of where you publish, uh, what type of research you do to bring in grant money. Uh, And and I think the the lucky ones are the ones that can, can do that for a period of time get tenure and then they're free to do uh, what they want after that. I think uh, Lon Kilgore is a good example of that where, you know, once he kind of got tenured and and sort of stepped away from from the lab, a lot of his his new publications are in in readily accessible journals or or contributing to textbooks that uh, people are buying and and things like that. Yeah. (laughs) Hello? Did
2: we lose Charles? Charles? Uh, yeah, I, I, I got
1: left there for a second. I apologize. Um, yeah. Michael, I just wanted to, once again, uh, let people know where to reach you, and that's www.drhartman.blogspot.com. And uh, and by the way, if you're looking for upcoming uh, blog topics, I would love to see a piece uh, teaching people how to evaluate research. If sure. somebody's looking at an abstract, how to, how to have a sense of knowing what kind of a study size is adequate, and uh you know just uh, all the different parameters that you know the, the the quality of the of the subjects and you know all of those sorts of things I, I think people you know it's so easy to find studies that 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 um, are on both sides of a given issue and and people just need to have better skills in terms of looking at the quality of various studies and I think that would be kind of a neat a
2: neat. Uh, oh yeah I mean it' especially i mean yes in in the training field, but the the supplementation field it's a travesty what's getting passed off by some of these companies sure <laughs> but, uh, and the, the thing is is I mean it's the people are not taking it on their own personal uh, you know the, they they don't feel personally responsible to to actually back up and look at these studies and see what the heck these guys are claiming and they don't have the, the idea how to how to read them but, yeah I think that'd be a great great article
3: uh, I think one of the the big problems with with publication in, in scientific journals is that there's this established kind of level of significance. And maybe that's something I can allude to, like in this evaluating research topic, that uh, uh, in order for you to to claim a result is actually happening, it has to kind of stand up to a statistical test. And, and the way that's kind of set up is it's like 95% of the time it, it is, it is what it is. Uh, but we know in sports that it, it's never going to be like that. And, and I'm involved in, in some research right now where we're looking at the, the statistical analysis between like first and second place and first and third place in the Olympics, uh, over the course of like four different Olympics, uh, four Olympi- Olympiads where we looked at all the different track and field results. So all the sprints, all the middle distance, all the field events and trying to determine the actual... You know the difference between first and second, first and third. Uh, from a financial standpoint, the difference between a gold medal and a bronze medal is, is probably in the, the millions of dollars, depending on the event and you know, high, how high profile the athlete is. Uh, the difference in, in terms of competition is, is, is so so very small. So there are, there's potentially a lot of really good research that that could be published or is published that's sort of disregarded as well. They didn't find anything. Well, if they found a one percent difference, that that could be a, a huge Huge difference. It's yeah.
0: Huge, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Interesting.
2: Um, got I had something else on my head, but now I lost it.
1: Well, Michael, as we uh, as we get ready to wrap up here, anything we should know about in the future? Uh, any uh, any products, uh, uh, seminars? Uh, any any places you'll be coming up? Any any blog posts we should know about that are coming up?
3: You know, right now I'm really just working on, on developing the blog, and I'm trying to get a, at least two two quality posts a week, and hopefully I'd like to get more. Um, I have a, a free training program that I kind of, if you subscribe to my newsletter, that's sort of a, a free gift in, in return for, for subscription. So if you head to my blog, and the link's right on the, uh, kind of the, the not the home page of iron radio but the link to the the this event uh, you can click yeah. on it there as well and then just enter your email and, and get the free training course and there's some good information in there and it's, it's a program that i've used for probably going on about 10 years now with different weightlifters and, and it's it's hard to do a, a cookie cutter type program like that but maybe it's something that will get people on the right track or, or get them uh thinking a little bit differently of how they organize their training leading up to like a competition uh, for olympic weightlifting but that's oh, my only That's me. my only thing on the agenda right now.
1: Cool. I just signed
2: up myself. It took about three seconds. <laughs>
3: uh, I appreciate that. It's, uh, it's good to have uh, Charles Staley uh, I'm, as uh, the I subscriber. That's the only thing I was
2: going to bring up. Um, just uh, another thing would be a great post or article. Uh, coming from your science background, I mean, you guys are trying to find an absolute. Yeah. And a huge problem, and I know you'll understand this, but, I mean, most of the people I run into, most of the people we deal with, in training or diet, it's they have a belief that there is there is one absolute truth. In training, and, and it's it's so hard to get across that there isn't. There are great methods, but like you said earlier, there's about 18 ways to skin a cat at least. Yep. And uh, I don't know how to get that across to people with and make them just understand it what is great for me may not be great for you and that's why it's you know my job to figure out what's great for you but uh i don't yeah. know just, I, I, I don't I know how you agree with that. It.
3: sometimes it's hard to convince people what they uh what they don't want to believe and usually it just takes some something to happen in their their own personal training or their own life to kind of for the light bulb to go on. And maybe it's, you know, like an like example of, you know, somebody who doesn't get any sleep and, and travels across the country and they have all these things against them and then they perform well and they go, you know what, maybe there isn't a, a, a right way. There, there's, there's certainly a better way to do things, but there is no 100% right way. I, I try to get that across to some of my classes I teach with, with undergraduate students and, uh, like I, I lay out, like uh, kind of like program design and, and training, I say, you know, this is a, a a good effective way to to get results out of your clients or get results out of athletes. But by no means is it the only way. And if somebody ever tells you that this is the only way or, or all athletes have to squat or something along those lines, they, they they probably are trying to sell you something or they they're they're, they're ignorant of the, of the topic. And I, I think the squat is is you know far and away one of the best exercises anybody can do. But unless you're a competitive powerlifter, you don't have to squat. Uh, yeah. Squat's a great way to, to train a lot of muscle with, a, you know, compound, multi-joint movement. You can use a ton of weight. But there's no rule that says every football player on, on the field has to perform squats. But if somebody has, you know, horrible flexibility issues and and they're basically doing more damage to themselves trying to squat until they improve that or, or if somebody who's coming off of, of, you know, knee surgery or just they have bad squatting technique, they can train their lower body by doing other exercises, and that's something I try to get across. That there are no absolutes. There's there's better, but there is no best. And if there was a best, we'd all be doing it, and it wouldn't be a, a debate.
2: Well, and it's exactly why. I mean, it's exactly why I enjoy this field. And it's exactly why you, as a researcher, have a job. I mean, if we knew exactly what it was, there's always going to be more to research. No matter what, we're never going to find perfection. It's just not going to happen. I mean, that's the same thing that led me to my my art degree, my master's degree in art. It was just, just the enjoyment of knowing I will never reach perfection. Yep. I can always do something more, and you can always do the same thing in training, and it's just an ever – you have to learn from today to the end of your life if you're going to be involved. In and that's just – it's turning that into a positive and looking at it as a beautiful thing. You know, it's like I can keep doing this forever.
3: But and, and I think one of the, the big things I I get this question a lot from, from students and you know, they're they're interested in, in, in becoming a, a strength and conditioning coach or, or working with athletes and you know, we'll have them in X Fizz and and we'll go through some, you know, some kind of complicated topics. And it's like, why do I have to learn all this science? And, and, and you know, this is like the foundation and, and what you're doing today with your athletes. For one, it, it's probably not what you're going to be doing 30 years from now or 20 years from now. So it's important to understand how or why you might change, but it's also not going to work forever. You know, training status changes. Uh, people develop injuries. People develop plateaus in their training and you have to be adjustable in, in how you, uh, and how you design training for an individual or, or how you look at the, you know, the, kind of the annual plan. Uh, and you have to sort of understand the, the background about that. It doesn't mean you have to be an expert in biochemistry or, or molecular physiology, but it, but it sure helps to have a little bit of that understanding so that you can make some of those changes.
2: Exactly. I mean, in in the end, yes, you're going to, and you you have to build a box for yourself. Yep. But keep a few doors and windows open. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
3: big, big doors and, and big windows because, yeah, yeah it, it's gonna, it's gonna change. All right, back, Charles, I just had to jump in there and it came to my head button.
1: No, I think uh, Michael, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us today. Is there a, a, any any other hot button things that we've left out here?
3: Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, I think we 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 covered a lot of a lot of good information and uh, touched a lot of bases. And, and if nothing else, hopefully we maybe make people think about the, either their own training or, or the training of their clients or their athletes, and they kind of look at it and they say, you know what, maybe there isn't a, a best way or an absolute way. Maybe I can be a little more uh, adaptable and use a little bit of science to, to help maybe guide my, my training. I
1: love it. I love it. Yeah, Great. You know, it, it be, let's just say this, it beats the alternative. That's what I always say. Sure. To people who have issues with science. Well, you know, do you have a better alternative? Yeah. So <laughs> that's, uh that's kind of my take on it but uh michael thank you so much again and uh maybe we can twist your arm to come back sometime no, soon No,
3: absolutely I'd love to I enjoyed the the time here and I I look forward to doing it again
1: Fantastic Cool yeah. well, uh, hey, I, I
3: have, have to, to uh announce
0: winners here
1: Oh that's true. Yeah, let's sure. let's do that
0: Um Phil do we have any sort of a drum roll sound
2: <laughs> Uh yeah I do. give me give me seconds
0: <laughs> uh, Um Okay, just uh, while, while Phil's fun, finding the uh, the uh, suitable music, um, the answers to our trivia competition for those who are uh, want to know is um, Bill Pearl trains in his barn. Um, Charles says that uh, somebody should train for ten years before they open their pie hole. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: the gym where myself and Lonnie uh, train for, or have trained is Bodybuilders Inc. in or Orpex Gym in uh, Akron, Ohio. And PETA in Phil's world stands for Please Eat the Animals. So, all right, yeah, I got a good one here. Okay. All right. Oh,
1: that was anti-climactic, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the winners are um, Jesse Frank, I believe is his name, and <laughs> and just Sebastian from Canada um now Jesse Frank um won our trivia competition as well as Sebastian Sebastian also um as well as winning the second of our trivia competition uh prize is um also gets the uh free one year subscription to the new Muscle Insider magazine so oh, cool. again yeah. Jesse Frank and Sebastian <laughs> and Sebastian from Canada so but I don't have contact information for these guys so if you guys could go to uh, ironradio.org Um, And I think at the bottom right hand, there's a contact um, uh, link. And send us all your relevant information, um, email address, phone numbers, and addresses. Uh, We'll make sure that uh, your prizes and so forth are sent out. So congratulations to Jesse, Frank, and Sebastian from Canada. All All right. right.
1: Until next week.